Charles Wallace, she cried. What are they doing about Charles Wallace? We don't know what it's doing to him or making him do. Please, oh, please help us. Yes, yes, little one. Of course we will help you. A meeting is in session right now to study what is best to do. We have never before been able to talk to anyone who has managed to escape from a dark planet. So although your father is blaming himself for everything that has happened, we feel that he must be quite an extraordinary person to get out of Camazots with you at all. But the little boy, and I understand that he is a very special, a very important little boy, Ah, my child, you must accept that this will not be easy. To go back through the black thing, back to Camazots. I don't know, I don't know. But father left him, Meg said. He's got to bring him back. He can't just abandon Charles Wallace. The beast's communication suddenly became crisp. Nobody said anything about abandoning anybody. That is not our way. But we know that just because we want something does not mean that we will get what we want, and we still do not know what to do. And we cannot allow you, in your present state, to do anything that would jeopardize us all. I can see that you wish your father to go rushing back to Camazots, and you could probably make him do this, and then where would we be? No, no. You must wait until you are more calm. Now, my darling, here is a robe for you to keep you warm and comfortable. Meg felt herself being lifted again, and a soft, light garment was slipped about her. Don't worry about your little brother. The tentacle's musical words were soft against her. We would never leave him behind the shadow. But for now, you must relax. You must be happy. You must get well. The gentle words, the feeling that this beast would be able to love her no matter what she said or did, lapped Meg in warmth and peace. She felt a delicate touch of tentacle to her cheek, as tender as her mother's kiss. It is so long since my own small ones were grown and gone, the beast said. You are so tiny and vulnerable. Now I will feed you. You must eat slowly and quietly. I know that you are half starved, that you have been without food far too long. But you must not rush things or you will not get well. Something completely and indescribably and incredibly delicious was put to Meg's lips, and she swallowed gratefully. With each swallow, she felt strength returning to her body, and she realized that she had had nothing to eat since the horrible fake turkey dinner on Camazops, which she had barely tasted. How long ago was her mother's stew? Time no longer had any meaning. How long does night last here? She murmured sleepily. It will be day again, won't it? Hush, the beast said. Eat, small one. 
during the coolness which is now, we sleep. And when you waken, there will be warmth again and many things to do. You must eat now and sleep, and I will stay with you. What should I call you, please? Meg asked. Well, now, first try not to say any words for just a moment. Think within your own mind. Think of all the things you call people, different kinds of people. While Meg thought, the beast murmured to her gently. No, mother is a special, a one name, and a father you have here, not just friend, nor teacher, nor brother, nor sister. What is acquaintance? What a funny hard word. And, maybe, yes, perhaps that will do. And you think of such odd words about me. Thing and monster. Monster, what a horrid sort of word. I really do not think I am a monster. Beast, that will do. And beast. And beast, Meg murmured sleepily and laughed. Have I said something funny? Aunt Beast asked in surprise. Isn't Aunt Beast all right? Aunt Beast is lovely, Meg said. Please sing to me, Aunt Beast. If it was impossible to describe sight to Aunt Beast, it would be even more impossible to describe the singing of Aunt Beast to a human being. It was a music even more glorious than the music of the singing creatures on Uriel. It was a music more tangible than form or sight. It had essence and structure. It supported Meg more firmly than the arms of Aunt Beast. It seemed to travel with her, to sweep her aloft in the power of song, so that she was moving the glory among the stars, and for a moment... She, too, felt that the words darkness and light had no meaning, and only this melody was real. Meg did not know when she fell asleep within the body of the music. When she wakened, Aunt Beast was asleep, too, the softness of her furry, faceless head drooping. Night had gone, and a dull gray light filled the room. But she realized now that here on this planet... There was no need for color, that the grays and browns merging into each other were not what the beasts knew, and that what she herself saw was only the smallest fraction of what the planet was really like. It was she who was limited by her senses, not the blind beasts, for they must have senses of which she could not even dream. She stirred slightly, and Aunt Beast bent over her immediately. What a lovely sleep, my darling. Do you feel all right? I feel wonderful, Meg said. Aunt Beast, what is this planet called? Oh, dear, Aunt Beast sighed. I find it not easy at all to put things the way your mind shapes them. You call where you came from Kamazots? Well, it's where we came from, but it's not our planet. You can call us Ixchel, I guess, Aunt Beast told her. We share the same sun as lost Kamazots, but that, give thanks, is all we share. Are you fighting the black thing? Meg asked. Oh, yes, 
beast replied. In doing that, we can never relax. We are the cold according to his purpose, and whom he calls, them he also justifies. Of course, we have help, and without help, it would be much more difficult. Who helps you? Meg asked. Oh dear, it is so difficult to explain things to you, small one. And I know that it is not just because you are a child. The other two are as hard to reach into as you are. What can I tell you that will mean anything to you? Good helps us. The stars help us. Perhaps what you would call light helps us. Love helps us. Oh, my child, I cannot explain. This is something you just have to know or not know. But... We look not at the things which are what you would call seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Aunt Beast, do you know Mrs. Watsit? Meg asked with a sudden flooding of hope. Mrs. Watsit? Aunt Beast was puzzled. Oh, child... Your language is so utterly simple and limited that it has the effect of extreme complication. Her forearms, tentacles waving, were outflung in a gesture of helplessness. Would you like me to take you to your father and your Calvin? Oh, yes, please. Let us go, then. They are waiting for you to make plans, and we thought you would enjoy eating. What is it you call it? Oh, yes, breakfast together. You will be too warm in that heavy fur now. I will dress you in something lighter, and then we will go. As though Meg were a baby, Aunt Beast bathed and dressed her, and this new garment, though it was made of a pale fur, was lighter than the lightest summer clothes on earth. Aunt Beast put one tentacled arm around Meg's waist and led her through long, dim corridors in which she could see only shadows and shadows of shadows until they reached a large, columned chamber. Shafts of light came in from an open skylight and converged about a huge, round stone table. Here were seated several of the great beasts, and Calvin and Mr. Murray, on a stone bench that circled the table. Because the beasts were so tall, even Mr. Murray's feet did not touch the ground, and lanky Calvin's long legs dangled as though he were Charles Wallace. The hall was partially enclosed by vaulted arches leading to long, paved walks. There were no empty walls, no covering roofs, so that although the light was dull in comparison to Earth's sunlight, Meg had no feeling of dark or of chill. As Aunt Beast led Meg in, Mr. Murray slid down from the bench and hurried to her, putting his arms about her tenderly. They promised us you were all right, he said. While she had been in Aunt Beast's arms, Meg had felt safe and secure. Now, her worries about Charles Wallace and her disappointment in her father's human fallibility rose like a gorge in her throat. I'm fine, she muttered, looking not at Calvin or her father, 
but at the beasts, for it was to them she turned now for help. It seemed to her that neither her father nor Calvin were properly concerned about Charles Wallace. Meg, Calvin said gaily, you've never tasted such food in your life. Come and eat. Aunt Beast lifted Meg up onto the bench and sat down beside her, then heaped a plate with food, strange fruits and breads that tasted unlike anything Meg had ever eaten. Everything was dull and colorless and unappetizing to look at, and at first, even remembering the meal Aunt Beast had fed her the night before, Meg hesitated to taste. But once she had managed the first bite, she ate eagerly. It seemed that she would never have her fill again. The others waited until she slowed down. Then Mr. Murray said gravely, We are trying to work out a plan to rescue Charles Wallace, since I made such a mistake in tessering away from it. We feel that it would not be wise for me to try to get back to Camazots even alone. If I missed the mark again, I could easily get lost and wander forever from galaxy to galaxy. And that would be small help to anyone, least of all to Charles Wallace. Such a wave of despondency came over Meg that she was no longer able to eat. Our friends here, he continued, feel that it was only the fact that I still wore the glasses your Mrs. Who gave you that kept me within this solar system. Here are the glasses, Meg, but I'm afraid that the virtue has gone from them and now they are only glass. Perhaps they were meant to help only once and only on camisots. Perhaps it was going through the black thing that did it. He pushed the glasses across the table at her. These people know about tessering, Calvin gestured at the circle of great beasts. But they can't do it onto a dark planet. Have you tried to call Mrs. Watsit? Meg asked. Not yet, her father answered. But if you haven't... thought of anything else. It's the only thing to do. Father, don't you care about Charles at all? At that, Aunt Beast stood up saying, child, in a reproving way. Mr. Murray said nothing, and Meg could see that she had wounded him deeply. She reacted as she would have reacted to Mr. Jenkins. She scowled down at the table saying, we've got to ask them for help now. You're just stupid if you think we don't. Aunt Beast spoke to the others. A child is distraught. Don't judge her harshly. She was almost taken by the black thing. Sometimes we can't know what spiritual damage it leaves, even when physical recovery is complete. Meg looked angrily around the table. The beast sat there, silent, motionless. She felt that she was being measured and found wanting. Calvin swung away from her and hunched himself up. Hasn't it occurred to you that we've been trying to tell them about our ladies? What do you think we've been up to all this time, just stuffing our faces? Okay, you have a shot at it. Yes, try, child. Aunt Beast seated herself again and pulled Meg up beside her. But I do not understand this feeling of anger I sense in you. What is it about? There is blame going on and guilt. Why? Aunt Beast, don't you know? No. 
Ant Beast said. But this is not telling me about whoever they are you want us to know. Try. Meg tried, blunderingly, fumblingly. At first, she described Mrs. Watsit and her man's coat and multicolored shawls and scarves, Mrs. Who and her white robes and shimmering spectacles, Mrs. Witch in her peaked cap and black gown quivering in and out of body. Then she realized that this was absurd. She was describing them only to herself. This wasn't Mrs. Watsit or Mrs. Who or Mrs. Witch. She might as well have described Mrs. Watsit as she was when she took on the form of a flying creature of Uriel. Don't try to use words, Aunt Beast said soothingly. You're just fighting yourself and me. Think about what they are. This look doesn't help us at all. Meg tried again. But she could not get a visual concept out of her mind. She tried to think of Mrs. Watsit explaining tessering. She tried to think of them in terms of mathematics. Every once in a while, she thought she felt a flicker of understanding from Aunt Beast or one of the others. But most of the time, all that emanated from them was gentle puzzlement. Angels! Calvin shouted suddenly from across the table. Guardian angels! There was a moment's silence, and he shouted again, his face tense with concentration. Messengers! Messengers of God! I thought for a moment. Aunt B started, then subsided, sighing. No, it's not clear enough. How strange it is that they can't tell us what they themselves seem to know. A tall, thin beast murmured. One of that beast's tentacled arms went around Meg's waist again. They are very young, and on their earth, as they call it, they never communicate with other planets. They revolve about all alone in space. Oh, the thin beast said. Aren't they lonely? Suddenly... A thundering voice reverberated throughout the great hall. We are here. Chapter 10. Absolute Zero. The first sign of returning consciousness was cold, then sound. She was aware of voices that seemed to be traveling through her across an arctic waste. Slowly, the icy sounds cleared, and she realized that the voices belonged to her father and Calvin. She did not hear Charles Wallace. She tried to open her eyes, but the lids would not move. She tried to sit up, but she could not stir. She struggled to turn over, to move her hands, her feet... But nothing happened. She knew that she had a body, but it was as lifeless as marble. She heard Calvin's frozen voice. Her heart is beating so slowly. Her father's voice. But it's beating. She's alive. Barely. We couldn't find a heartbeat at all at first. We thought she was dead. Yes. And then we could feel her heart very faintly, the beats very far apart. And then it got stronger, so 
All we have to do is wait. Her father's words sounded brittle in her ears, as though they were being chipped out of ice. Calvin. Yes, you're right, sir. She wanted to call out to them. I'm alive. I'm very much alive. Only I've been turned to stone. But she could not call out any more than she could move. Calvin's voice again. Anyhow, you got her away from it. You got us both away. And we couldn't have gone on holding out. It's so much more powerful and strong than... How did we stay out, sir? How did we manage as long as we did? Her father. Because it's completely unused to being refused. That's the only reason I could keep from being absorbed, too. No mind has tried to hold out against it for so many thousands of centuries that certain centers have become soft and atrophied through lack of use. If you hadn't come to me when you did, I'm not sure how much longer I would have lasted. I was on the point of giving in. Calvin. Oh, no, sir. Her father. Yes. Nothing seemed important anymore but rest. And of course, it offered me complete rest. I had almost come to the conclusion that I was wrong to fight, that it was right after all, and everything I believed in most passionately was nothing but a madman's dream. But then you and May came into me, broke through my prison, and hope and faith returned. Calvin. Sir, why were you on Kamazuts at all? Was there a particular reason for going there? Her father, with a frigid laugh. Going to Kamazats was a complete accident. I never intended even to leave our own solar system. I was heading for Mars. Tessering is even more complicated than we had expected. Calvin. Sir, how was it able to get Charles Wallace before it got Meg and me? Her father. From what you've told me, it's because Charles Wallace thought he could deliberately go into it and return. He trusted too much to his own strength. Listen, I think the heartbeat is getting stronger. His words no longer sounded to her quite as frozen. Was it his words that were ice or her ears? Why did she hear only her father and Calvin? Why didn't Charles Wallace speak? Silence. A long silence. Then Calvin's voice again. Can't we do anything? Can't we... Look for help? Do we just have to go on waiting? Her father. We can't leave her. And we must stay together. We must not be afraid to take time. Calvin. You mean we were? We rushed into things on Kamazats too fast? And Charles Wallace rushed in too fast? And that's why he got caught? Maybe. I'm not sure. I don't know enough yet. Time is different on Kamazats anyhow. Our time, inadequate though it is, at least is straightforward. It may not be even fully one-dimensional because it can't move back and forth on its line, only ahead. But at least it's consistent in its direction. Time on Kamazat seems to be inverted, turned in on itself. So I have no idea whether I was imprisoned in that column for centuries or only for minutes. Silence for a moment. Then her father's voice again. I think I feel a pulse in her wrist now. 
Meg could not feel his fingers against her wrist. She could not feel her wrist at all. Her body was still stone, but her mind was beginning to be capable of movement. She tried desperately to make some kind of a sound, a signal to them, but nothing happened. Their voices started again. Calvin, about your project, sir, were you on it alone? Her father, oh, no. There were half a dozen of us working on it, and I dare say a number of others we don't know about. Certainly we weren't the only nation to investigate along that line. It's not really a new idea. But we did try very hard not to let it be known abroad that we were trying to make it practicable. Did you come to Kamazots alone? Or were there others with you? I came alone. You see, Calvin, there was no way to try it out ahead with rats or monkeys or dogs. And we had no idea whether it would really work or whether it would be complete bodily disintegration. Playing with time and space is a dangerous game. But why you, sir? I wasn't the first. We drew straws, and I was second. What happened to the first man? We don't... Look, did her eyelids move? Silence, then. No, it was only a shadow. But I did blink, Meg tried to tell them. I'm sure I did. And I can hear you do something. But there was only another long silence, during which perhaps they were looking at her, watching for another shadow, another flicker. Then she heard her father's voice again, quiet, a little warmer. More like his own voice. We drew straws, and I was second. We know Hank went. We saw him go. We saw him vanish right in front of the rest of us. He was there, and then he wasn't. We were to wait for a year for his return or for some message. We waited. Nothing. Calvin, his voice cracking. Sheepers, sir. You must have been in sort of a flap. Yes, it's a frightening as well as an exciting thing to discover that matter and energy are the same thing. That size is an illusion and that time is a material substance. We can know this, but it's far more than we can understand with our puny little brains. I think you'll be able to comprehend far more than I and Charles Wallace even more than you. Yes, but what happened, please, sir, after the first man? Meg could hear her father sigh. Then it was my turn. I went, and here I am, a wiser and a humbler man. I'm sure I haven't been gone two years. Now that you've come, I have some hope that I may be able to return in time. One thing I have to tell the others is that we know nothing. Calvin, what do you mean, sir? Her father, just what I say. We're children, playing with dynamite. In our mad rush, we've plunged into this before. With a desperate effort, Meg made a sound. It wasn't a very loud sound, but it was a sound. Mr. Murray stopped. Hush, listen. Meg made a strange, croaking noise. She found that she could pull open her eyelids. They felt heavier than marble, but she managed to raise them. Her father and Calvin were hovering over her. She did not see Charles Wallace. Where was he? She was lying in an open field of what looked like rusty, stubby grass. She blinked, slowly, 
and with difficulty. Meg, her father said. Meg, are you all right? Her tongue felt like a stone tongue in her mouth, but she managed to croak. I can't move. Try, Calvin urged. He sounded now as though he were very angry with her. Wiggle your toes, wiggle your fingers. I can't. Where's Charles Wallace? Her words were blunted by the stone tongue. Perhaps they could not understand her, for there was no answer. We were knocked out for a minute, too, Calvin was saying. You'll be all right, Meg. Don't get panicky. He was crouched over her, and though his voice continued to sound cross, he was peering at her with anxious eyes. She knew that she must still have her glasses on because she could see him clearly. His freckles, his stubby black lashes, the bright blue of his eyes. Her father was kneeling on her other side. The round lenses of Mrs. Who's glasses still blurred his eyes. He took one of her hands and rubbed it between his. Can you feel my fingers? He sounded quite calm, as though there were nothing extraordinary in having her completely paralyzed. At the quiet of his voice, she felt calmer. Then she saw that there were great drops of sweat standing out on his forehead. And she noticed vaguely that the gentle breeze that touched her cheeks was cool. At first his words had been frozen, and now the wind was mild. Was it icy cold here or warm? Can you feel my fingers? he asked again. Yes. Now she could feel a pressure against her wrist, but she could not nod. Where's Charles Wallace? Her words were a little less blurred. Her tongue, her lips were beginning to feel cold and numb, as though she had been given a massive dose of Novocaine at the dentist's. She realized with a start that her body and limbs were cold, that not only was she not warm, she was frozen from head to toe, and it was this that had made her father's words seem like ice that had paralyzed her. I'm frozen, she said faintly. Camazots hadn't been this cold. A cold that cut deeper than the wind on the bitterest of winter days at home. She was away from it, but this unexplained iciness was almost as bad. Her father had not saved her. Now she was able to look around a little, and everything she could see was rusty and gray. There were trees edging the field in which she lay, and their leaves were the same brown as the grass. There were plants that might have been flowers, except that they were dull and gray. In contrast to the drabness of color, to the cold that numbed her, the air was filled with a delicate spring-like fragrance, almost imperceptible as it blew softly against her face. She looked at her father and Calvin. They were both in their shirt sleeves and looked perfectly comfortable. It was she, wrapped in their clothes, who was frozen too solid even to shiver. Why am I so cold? she asked. Where's Charles Wallace? They did not answer. Father, where are we? Mr. Murray looked at her soberly. I don't know, Meg. I don't test her very well. I must have overshot somehow. We're not on Camazots. I don't know where we are. I think you're so cold because we went through the black thing 
and I thought for a moment it was going to tear you away from me. Is this a dark planet? Slowly her tongue was beginning to thaw, her words were less blurred. I don't think so, Mr. Murray said, but I know so little about anything that I can't be sure. You shouldn't have tried to test her then. She had never spoken to her father in this way before. The words seemed hardly to be hers. Calvin looked at her, shaking his head. It was the only thing to do. At least it got us off Camazots. Why did we go without Charles Wallace? Did we just leave him there? The words that were not really hers came out cold and accusing. We didn't just leave him, her father said. Remember that the human brain is a very delicate organism, and it can be easily damaged. See, Meg? Calvin crouched over her, tense and worried. If your father had tried to yank Charles away when he tessered us, and if it had kept grabbing hold of Charles, it might have been too much for him and we'd have lost him forever. And we had to do something right then. Why? It was taking us. You and I were slipping. And if your father had gone on trying to help us, he wouldn't have been able to hold out much longer either. You told him to tesser, Meg charged Calvin. There isn't any question of blame, Mr. Murray cut in severely. Can you move yet? All Meg's faults were uppermost in her now, and they were no longer helping her. No, you better take me back to Camazots and Charles Wallace quickly. You're supposed to be able to help. Disappointment was as dark and corrosive in her as the black thing. The ugly words tumbled from her cold lips, even as she herself could not believe that it was to her father. Her beloved, longed-for father that she was talking to in this way. If her tears had not still been frozen, they would have gushed from her eyes. She had found her father, and he had not made everything all right. Everything kept getting worse and worse. If the long search for her father was ended, and he wasn't able to overcome all their difficulties, there was nothing to guarantee that it would all come out right in the end. There was nothing left to hope for. She was frozen, and Charles Wallace was being devoured by it. Seesaw of love and hate, and the black thing pushed her down into hate. You don't even know where we are, she cried out at her father. We'll never see mother or the twins again. We don't know where Earth is or even where Camazots is. We're lost out in space. What are you going to do? She did not realize that she was as much in the power of the black thing as Charles Wallace. Mr. Murray bent over her, massaging her cold fingers. She could not see his face. My daughter, I am not a Mrs. What's-It, a Mrs. Who, or a Mrs. Which. Yes, Calvin has told me everything he could. I am a human being, and a very fallible one, but... I agree with Calvin. We were sent here for something, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. The black thing, Meg cried out at him. Why did you let it almost get me? You've never tessered as well as the rest of us, Calvin reminded her. 
It never bothered Charles and me as much as it did you. He shouldn't have taken me then, Meg said, until he learned to do it better. Neither her father nor Calvin spoke. Her father continued his gentle massage. Her fingers came back to life with tingling pain. You're hurting me. Then you're feeling again, her father said quietly. I'm afraid it is going to hurt, Meg. The piercing pain moved slowly up her arms, began in her toes and legs. She started to cry out against her father when Calvin exclaimed, Look! Coming towards them, moving in silence across the brown grass, were three figures. What were they? On Uriel, there had been the magnificent creatures. On Camazots, the inhabitants had at least resembled people. What were these three strange things approaching? They were the same dull gray color as the flowers. If they hadn't walked upright, they would have seemed like animals. They moved directly toward the three human beings. They had four arms and far more than five fingers to each hand. And the fingers were not fingers, but long, waving tentacles. They had heads, and they had faces. But where the faces of the creatures on Uriel had seemed far more than human faces, these seemed far less. Where the features would normally be, there were several indentations, and in place of ears and hair, there were more tentacles. They were tall, Meg realized as they came closer, far taller than any man. They had no eyes, just soft indentations. Meg's rigid, frozen body tried to shudder with terror, but instead of the shudder, all that came was pain. She moaned. The things stood over them. They appeared to be looking down at them, except that they had no eyes with which to see. Mr. Murray continued to kneel by Meg, massaging her. He's killed us, bringing us here, Meg thought. I'll never see Charles Wallace again, or Mother, or the twins. Calvin rose to his feet. He bowed to the beasts as though they could see him. He said, How do you do, sir, ma'am? Who are you? The tallest of the beasts said. His voice was neither hostile nor welcoming and it came not from the mouth-like indentation in the furry face, but from the waving tentacles. They'll eat us, Meg thought wildly. They're making me hurt. My toes, my fingers, I hurt. Calvin answered the beast's question. We're, we're from Earth. I'm not sure how we got here. We've had an accident. Meg, this girl is, is paralyzed. She can't move. She's terribly cold. We think that's why she can't move. One of them came up to Meg and squatted down on its huge haunches beside her, and she felt utter loathing and revulsion as it reached out a tentacle to touch her face. But with the tentacle came the same delicate fragrance that moved across her with the breeze, and she felt a soft, tingling warmth go all through her that momentarily assuaged her pain. She felt suddenly sleepy. I must look as strange to it as it looks to me, she thought drowsily. 
and then realized with a shock that of course the beast couldn't see her at all. Nevertheless, a reassuring sense of safety flowed through her with the warmth which continued to seep deep into her as the beast touched her. Then it picked her up, cradling her in two of its four arms. Mr. Murray stood up quickly. What are you doing? Taking the child. Chapter 11, Ant Beast No, Mr. Murray said sharply. Please put her down. A sense of amusement seemed to emanate from the beasts. The tallest, who seemed to be the spokesman, said, We frighten you? What are you going to do with us? Mr. Murray asked. The beast said, I'm sorry, we communicate better with the other one. He turned toward Calvin. Who are you? I'm Calvin O'Keefe. What's that? I'm a boy, a, a young man. You two are afraid? I'm not sure. Tell me, the beast said. What do you suppose you'd do if three of us suddenly arrived on your home planet? Shoot you, I guess, Calvin admitted. Then isn't that what we should do with you? Calvin's freckles seemed to deepen, but he answered quietly. I'd really rather you didn't. I mean, the Earth's my home. And I'd rather be there than anywhere in the world. I mean, the universe, and I can't wait to get back. But we make some awful bloopers there. The smallest beast, the one holding Meg, said, And perhaps they aren't used to visitors from other planets. Used to it, Calvin exclaimed. We've never had any as far as I know. Why? I don't know. The middle beast, a tremor of trepidation in his words, said, you aren't from a dark planet, are you? No. Calvin shook his head firmly, though the beast couldn't see him. We're, uh, we're shadowed, but we're fighting the shadow. The beast holding Meg questioned. You three are fighting? Yes, Calvin answered. Now that we know about it. The tall one turned back to Mr. Murray, speaking sternly. You, the oldest man... From where have you come now? Mr. Murray answered steadily. From a planet called Kamazots. There was a mutter from the three beasts. We do not belong there, Mr. Murray said slowly and distinctly. We were strangers there as we are here. I was a prisoner there and these children rescued me. My youngest son, my baby, is still there. Trapped in the dark mind of it. Meg tried to twist around in the beast's arms to glare at her father and Calvin. Why were they being so frank? Weren't they aware of the danger? But again, her anger dissolved as the gentle warmth from the tentacles flowed through her. She realized she could move her fingers and toes with comparative freedom, and the pain was no longer so acute. We must take this child back with us, the beast holding her said. Meg shouted at her father. Don't leave me the way you left Charles. With this burst of terror, 
A spasm of pain racked her body and she gasped. Stop fighting, the beast told her. You make it worse. Relax. That's what it said, Meg cried. Father, Calvin, help! The beast turned toward Calvin and Mr. Murray. This child is in danger. You must trust us. We have no alternative, Mr. Murray said. Can you save her? I think so. May I stay with her? No, but you will not be far away. We feel that you are hungry, tired, that you would like to bathe and rest. And this little, what is the word? The beast cocked its tentacles at Calvin. Girl, Calvin said. This little girl needs prompt and special care. The coldness of the, what is it you call it? The black thing? The black thing, yes. The black thing burns unless it is counteracted properly. The three bees stood around Meg, and it seemed that they were feeling into her with their softly waving tentacles. The movement of the tentacles was as rhythmic and flowing as the dance of an undersea plant. And lying there, cradled in the four strange arms, Meg, despite herself, felt a sense of security that was deeper than anything she had known since the days when she lay in her mother's arms in the old rocking chair and was sung to sleep. With her father's help, she had been able to resist it. Now... She could hold out no longer. She leaned her head against the beast's chest and realized that the gray body was covered with the softest, most delicate fur imaginable. And the fur had the same beautiful odor as the air. I hope I don't smell awful to it, she thought. But then she knew with a deep sense of comfort that even if she did smell awful, the beasts would forgive her. As the tall figure cradled her, she could feel the frigid stiffness of her body relaxing against it. This bliss could not come to her from a thing like it. It could only give pain, never relieve it. The beasts must be good. They had to be good. She sighed deeply, like a very small child, and suddenly... She was asleep. When she came to herself again, there was in the back of her mind a memory of pain, of agonizing pain. But the pain was over now, and her body was lapped in comfort. She was lying on something wonderfully soft in an enclosed chamber. It was dark. All she could see were occasional tall moving shadows, which she realized were beasts walking about. She had been stripped of her clothes, and something warm and pungent was gently being rubbed into her body. She sighed and stretched and discovered that she could stretch. She could move again. She was no longer paralyzed, and her body was bathed in waves of warmth. Her father had not saved her. The beasts had. So are you awake, little one? The words came gently to her ears. What a funny little tadpole you are. Is the pain gone now? 
all gone. Are you warm and alive again? Yes, I'm fine. She struggled to sit up. No, lie still, small one. You must not exert yourself as yet. We will have a fur garment for you in a moment, and then we will feed you. You must not even try to feed yourself. You must be as an infant again. The black thing does not relinquish its victims willingly. Where are Father and Calvin? Have they gone back for Charles Wallace? They are eating and resting, the beast said, and we are trying to learn about each other and see what is best to help you. We feel now that you are not dangerous and that we will be allowed to help you. Why is it so dark in here? Meg asked. She tried to look around, but all she could see was shadows. Nevertheless, there was a sense of openness, a feel of a gentle breeze moving lightly about that kept the darkness from being oppressive. Perplexity came to her from the beast. What is this dark? What is this light? We do not understand. Your father and the boy Calvin have asked this too. They say that it is night now on our planet and that they cannot see. They have told us that our atmosphere is what they call opaque so that the stars are not visible. And then they were surprised that we know stars, that we know their music and the movement of their dance far better than beings like you who spend hours studying them through what you call telescopes. We do not understand what this means to see. Well, it's what things look like, Meg said helplessly. We do not know what things look like, as you say, the beast said. We know what things are like. It must be a very limiting thing, this seeing. Oh, no, Meg cried. It's, it's the most wonderful thing in the world. What a very strange world yours must be, the beast said. That such a peculiar-seeming thing should be of such importance. Try to tell me, what is this thing called light that you were able to do so little without? Well, we can't see without it, Meg said, realizing that she was completely unable to explain vision and light and dark. How do you explain sight on a world where no one has ever seen and where there is no need of eyes. Well, uh, on this planet, she fumbled, you have a son, don't you? A most wonderful son, from which comes our warmth and the rays which give us our flowers, our food, our music, and all the things which make life and growth. Well, Meg said, when we are turned toward the sun, our earth, our planet, I mean, toward our sun, we receive its light. And when we're turned away from it, it is night. And if we want to see, we have to use artificial lights. 
Artificial lights, the beast sighed. How very complicated life on your planet must be. Later on, you must try to explain some more to me. All right, Meg promised. And yet she knew that to try to explain anything that could be seen with the eyes would be impossible, because the beast in some way saw, knew, understood far more completely than she or her parents or Calvin or even Charles wanted.